I love March, y'all. I love March Madness. I love just being able to uh, watch games like all day yesterday and maybe snuck and caught a few the day before. Love it. I love the euphoria of victory and the devastation of defeat. It's just, it is great theater. It's why live sports are so great. And unless you have lived in a hole in the ground like a hobbit, you know that late Friday night something extraordinary happened. Though as close to Charlottesville as we are, some of you probably don't find it so extraordinary. Virginia was the top-ranked team in the country, only two losses all year, number one overall seed in the 64-team tournament, and they were handily defeated by the underdog, a team with a mascot of a golden retriever, so like doubly underdogs. And it was a, just a monumental loss. And, and I bet if you talked to any of the players from UVA, they would really quickly tell you that they would love a do-over. They would love a second chance at that game. That they would do better. Have you ever messed something up so badly and just wished you could have a second chance? Second chances don't always come, but what we find is this morning in the book of Jonah, the wayward prophet is given just that, a second chance. It's as if he screwed up his line and was an actor in a play, and God as the director just said, you know what, let's take two. Let's try it again. Jonah will be given another opportunity to be a faithful witness He'll have another opportunity to believe in what God has said, to say what God says, and do what God says. Our main idea this morning will be that God works through his word and his witness. And I'm going to exhort you to do what God says, say what God says, and to believe what God says. The outline follows the exhortation to make it really easy to remember and with that, we will pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you that as we read it, it's as if we are looking into a mirror and seeing our prideful selves, our sinful selves. We, we, we look into the mirror and see our need for your mercy and for your grace and for the forgiveness of our sins and our arrogance. And so God, we ask this morning that you would forgive us afresh, that you would kill the Pharisee that lives within us all and make us more like that publican who beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, God, for I am a sinner. Help us to hear from you this morning, God, that we might be made more like you, that we might love you more deeply, that we might worship you more wholly with our lives. Lord, thank you for this word. Speak to us now. Chip away the cynicism and the anger and the sins that have grown around our hearts and become encrusted 
rock and mold. Break that away. Cleanse us afresh. Purify us as Christ is pure. This we pray in his name. Amen. So Jonah chapter 3 verse 1, we're going to read the first three verses. And what I want you to notice is this is going to sound a lot like Jonah 1. Yeah, Jonah 1 verse 1. It's almost verbatim in the Hebrew and it's intentional uh, on the part of the author, he's showing us that despite Jonah's ridiculous running from God, he's right back where he started because God gets what he wants. God accomplishes his will. And so starting with verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Our God is so gracious and kind. A second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went, not to Joppa this time, but to Nineveh, according to the Lord's command. Now, if you remember why Jonah didn't go in the the first place, a little bit of review or recap here, there were two primary reasons that we pointed out and speculated about why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. The first was his fear of the Assyrians. That's the people that live inside of Nineveh. Nineveh is not yet the capital city of Assyria, though it will be, but it is full of Assyrians who are notorious for cruelty and their barbarian ways of basically coming up with ways to torture people. Uh, One of the more famous accounts of uh, one of their leaders, he he documented how uh, there was a rebellious city, and in order to bring that city more better under his control, after he quelled the rebellion, he skinned those who were spearheading the rebellion and took their skins and hung those skins around the city like flags to remind the people who was really in charge. This is the kind of cruelty we're talking about, right? For Jonah to go into Nineveh and to preach about God's judgment would be akin to a Jew in 1942 being told to go to Berlin and to tell Hitler about God's judgment and his love and his kindness and his mercy. Pretty scary prospect. It would have been akin to you a year ago, or maybe longer now, when ISIS was in control of Mosul, which is contemporary, that's where Nineveh was, and preached to ISIS about the forgiveness of God and about the judgment of God. This is a terrifying prospect for our prophet, and so we can sympathize with his fears, but this is not the primary reason that we are told Jonah doesn't go. The reason that Jonah doesn't go, we're not made privy to until chapter 4, verse 2, when Jonah reveals the reason that he fled is because he knows that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in faithful one, and one who relents from sending disaster. You see, the second thing that kept Jonah from going to Nineveh was his fear of God's mercy. He wanted the Ninevites, he wanted those Assyrians to reap what they had sowed. He wanted them to be crushed beneath the weight of God's justice because they were an enemy of Israel and they were a cruel people worthy of judgment. And he knew if he preached that God is merciful, that God forgives sinners. 
Sure, that's okay that God forgives sinners like Jonah. It's okay that God has mercy on Israel. But he was offended by the idea that God might have mercy on Israel's neighbors. He, he had screwed up the first time. That's why he didn't want to go. And so we went on our little adventure on a ship that he went down into to go down to Tarshish, even though Tarshish is to the west. And the author was telling us that Jonah was separating himself from the presence of the Lord, which was indwelling the temple in Jerusalem. And he was getting as far away from God as he could. And so God gives Jonah what he wants. He sends a great wind upon the sea, stirs up a storm, casts Jonah over the side of the boat through the hands of sailors into judgment, into the waters of judgment. And then God sends his salvation in the form of a great fish, sea monster, if you will, swallows Jonah up. And it's in this fish that Jonah comes to his senses a little bit. He comes face to face with death. And finally, after not praying through the whole first chapter, he wouldn't call out against Nineveh as God had said. He wouldn't call out as the sailors asked him to. Finally, he prays to God. And even from the great distance of Sheol to Jerusalem, God is still present and God still hears Jonah's cry and God responds with mercy. This is the merciful God, and salvation belongs to him. And so Jonah, repenting not of his hatred for Assyria, but of his inability to obey God's command to go to Nineveh, he, he repents and now he goes to Nineveh. He gets a second chance. I mean, can you relate? We said, you've ever wanted a second chance at something. This is a second chance I don't think Jonah wanted. But, but most of us, when we've had maybe, maybe it was a relationship or uh, just a situation that was a little bit sticky. Maybe you had a job. You just messed that thing up so bad. And there was no second chance. What I want you to know this morning, friend, is that it wasn't that bad. Your screw-up wasn't outside of God's sovereignty and it's not outside of his ability to redeem. Like this, the God we serve is the God who gave hope to Adam after he plunged the whole human race into eternal misery. And whatever you've done, it's not quite as bad as that. This is the God who loves and forgives David who was a king, but also a rapist and a murderer. This is the God who forgives Mary Magdalene. This is the God who forgives and uses Saul, who becomes Paul. This is the God who comes to earth, takes on flesh, and dies in your place for your screw-ups. This is the God who raises from the dead in order to vindicate himself and to give hope to his people. This is the God who loves you who is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. Friend, no matter what you've done, God will forgive you. God still wants to use you. He didn't give up on Jonah because of his sin, and he's not going to give up on you because of your sin. This is the God who raises the dead. 
And so finally, after utilizing Jonah's circumstances to get him to obey, Jonah goes up and goes to Nineveh in obedience to God. Listen, past disobedience does not exempt you from present obedience. Past disobedience does not exempt you from present obedience. Now, you've probably screwed up in the past. You will disobey and screw up in the future. But you are always called to obey in the present. Always called to do what God says. And finally, Jonah is doing what God says. He goes to Nineveh to say what God says. Look at what Jonah is to tell the Ninevites. We see it in verse 2 and in verse 4. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah is not allowed to edit this message He's not allowed to tell the people whatever he wants. He's not allowed to tickle their ears. He must give them God's word. Because it is God's word through which he works. It's God's word that has the power to make the dead alive. And if we edit God's word so that it reflects our words rather than his words, well then we neuter the message of all its power. Jonah won't be allowed to tamper with God's message. Verse 4, that's 3b. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed. This is the message now. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished or overthrown. Just five words in Hebrew. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, whether this is a short, the whole sermon, just five words that he repeated over again, or maybe just said once, or if it's just kind of his uh, thesis statement for his sermon, his main idea, this is not what we would particularly in contemporary America consider a great approach to evangelism. Right? This is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Shout out to the four laws. It's not that. This is, God has a plan for your life, and it is destruction, judgment. And I think in our humanness, we go, like, does God know what he's telling these Ninevites? Like, this is never going to work. I'm not going to bring them to repentance. Why not just destroy them? Why warn them? A warning is an invitation to repent. A warning is an invitation to change the behavior that would bring about the negative result. That's why we have warnings. That's why it says on your box of Q-tips, do not insert into ear canal because you'll jack up your eardrum, even though that's what we all use them for. Don't lie. It's there to protect us, to change our behavior so that we don't inherit the consequences that will come as a result of that behavior. This warning, we're going, this is not going to work, God. Jonah showing up and saying, there's judgment for you. 
And yet, inexplicably, God goes and pulls a verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. It is incredible that this happens. The people of Nineveh believed God in response to a five-word Hebrew sermon about their coming judgment because God works through His Word and His witnesses. Jonah says what God says, and God does the rest. Notice the people of Nineveh also carry this message. They work as anonymous witnesses. Eventually it gets up to the king. Friends, we are called to witness to what God has done. When I, when I use the word witness, I mean uh, testifying to the reality of God in your life. Telling others about your experience of God. Your, your experience, because we're Christians, with, with Jesus. God uses this wayward prophet as his faithful witness because this prophet does what God says and he says what God does says. I mean, this message of judgment is not popular. I don't think it ever has been. Especially in a culture, I mean, we are in the age of my truth, which categorically rejects any notion of judgment. It denies that there's a judgment for living according to how your heart leads you. But the Bible says There's a way that seems right in the heart of a man, but in the end it leads to death. Judgment has been denied from the very beginning. Judgment was the first doctrine denied in Scripture. Did you know that? What what does the snake say to Eve in the garden? You will not surely die. It's the first doctrine denied in Scripture, and it's the most frequently doctrine that's denied by sinners. I will not surely die. I can live how I want. But the Bible says, you shall not surely die is a lie. The Bible says, it is appointed for a man to die once and after this judgment. So also Christ, having been offered once to bear sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And I would add, judgment to those who are not. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It's not a popular message, but it's the truth. And we, as God's witnesses, are called to share his word, to proclaim his word. We're called to say what God says to the world around us. And this is not an easy task, but it's a necessary one. It's like uh, being a physician and knowing your patient has a terminal disease. Now, a good doctor will come in to the room, have a proper bedside manner, and say, you are dying. Here are the treatment options. 
A bad doctor will go into the room of his terminal patient and say, everything's cool, man. Nothing to worry about. Live it up. Thankfully, for us as Christians, we don't just have the bad news. We, we, we have a solution to the sickness. Say, friend, you're dead in your sins, but God can make you alive. And this is still a, a, a pretty offensive message. The gospel's offensive. It says, God created you. You're accountable to him. You are a rebel sinner. You are rebel scum and you deserve to be crushed beneath the justice of God's wrath forever. If you want to be saved, there's only one name that you can call upon. There's only one person that can bring you salvation and it's Jesus Christ. The way you can be saved, you have to stop following your heart and you have to start obeying God's voice And the way you do that is by entrusting your entire life to Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen King. He died for your sins and he rose for your justification. That's the only way. People hate this because we are, especially in our country, self-made men and women. This is the country of rugged individualism. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But friends, the Bible tells us There are no straps on your boots. In fact, your feet are stuck in quicksand. And there's only one who can lift you up. His name is Christ. Christianity is not a religion of do and get salvation. It's a religion of done. God has done it for you. And you must believe. Again, difficult message, but it's one we're called to witness to. We're called to say what God says. And and so, when you go to say what God says to a non-Christian or other Christians, I think we're called to say what God says to both, we want to remember that that our duty, our, our job is not to convert people not to convert the non-Christian, or to automatically make our fellow Christians mature exponentially. It's not our job. Your job as a witness of God is to get people into the presence of the Word. Right? So Sometimes I think the reason many of us don't evangelize is because we think of evangelism as a one-time conversation that we had, like five minutes and it's all dependent on us. And we have five minutes with somebody and we've got we've to share Christ and convert that person or they're lost forever. And that's, that's our perspective on evangelism. And a lot of pressure. <laughs> I'm so glad that that's it's not necessarily how God works. Yes, God works through those uh, one, one-time conversations all the time uh, and you know, have them. That's great. But I think more commonly, the pattern is God works through relationship over time. As a much more effective strategy for evangelism is to invite somebody into your life to get in the Word together with you. Not just a strategy for evangelism, it's also a strategy for discipling. Sharing God's Word with other Christians. Uh, discipling is helping others follow Jesus, and evangelism is telling others about Jesus. 
And the job in both situations is to get the other person into the presence of God's Word because God works through His Word. It's how He brings dead people to life. It's how He grows Christians. It's how He strengthens the weary. The Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. And so, really practically, what, what you can do in this arena as God's witness, I'm just going to set up and make it really easy for you. What you can do is homework. And you're going to find somebody else in our church and you can say, we're going to get together once a week if you're really ambitious. If you're less ambitious, say once every two weeks or whatever, you set up your own dates and say, we're going to read through a book of the Bible together. And we're, we're going to talk about it. We're going to pray half an hour to an hour. We'll get a cup of coffee or lunch or something. And we're going to do that on the regular. And then, that, that's, that's step one, so you're going to gather together with another believer. And the second, two, this part two is really easy. It's going to, so you've got discipling. And the other part, you're going to do some evangelism. What you do is you just, you can find your non-Christian friend who's willing and say, hey, Jane Doe, w- would you be willing, uh, me and Rita are reading through the book of Mark would you be willing to read through it? We're doing you know, three, four chapters a week and we're just getting together talking about it and we would love a fresh perspective. Uh, we've been Christians a long time and so uh, sometimes people that aren't Christians or, or that just you know, aren't really familiar with the word, they have a different perspective and we would just love to talk about this. Would you be willing to get together with us? And all of a sudden, uh, you're meeting once every couple weeks or once a week and you are discipling someone, you're helping them grow in the word and you're also doing evangelism. And you're not, <laughs> there's nothing really dependent on you. You're just reading through the Bible. And yeah, there's going to be questions you don't know the answers to. So what? God works through his word. Be patient. Be kind. Invest in other people. One of the most marvelous truths of Christianity that, that I missed for a, a large portion of my life is that when we cultivate our friendships with one another, we are actually at that same time cultivating our relationship with God. Right? If you want the reality of God to be more present in your life, spend more time with his people. When we were going through 1 Corinthians, I just loved that. In chapter 12, verse 7, it talks about we each have a spiritual gift and it's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, a showing out of the Holy Spirit. And so you want to see God, well, look at each other. Because he shows himself through his people. Jesus identifies so closely with his church that when Saul is persecuting the church on the road to Damascus, when Jesus confronts him, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not my church. Me. And so I want to encourage you to to be in these discipling relationships and then use them to invite other people in and use them as an evangelism opportunity. There are resources for you to do this. There, I, mean, I got a couple books in the back called Discipling. If you want more about that, there's one called Evangelism. Pretty, pretty simple to the point. Uh, I have sermons online. Every sermon I've ever preached here is online. Uh, the manuscripts there. You can even say, hey, we're going to read through sections of Mark and then we're going to try to pick uh, a sermon over one of the sections that we really liked and we'll listen to it together. Right? Or you don't have to use me, you can use another faithful Bible teacher. I can give you names. But, but use these resources. Be a witness. 
Say what God says to those who are lost. Say what God says to each other because God works through His Word and His witnesses. Our job is to get other people into the presence of His Word so that He can do His work. We want to say what God says. Jonah does this and Nineveh is overthrown. I do, I do love, in my translation it says demolished, but I, I enjoy the translation. It says in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. And then the people in verse 5, they all repent and Nineveh is overthrown in a different way. The, the city is flipped on its head as all the people repent. The people believe what God says. When you believe what God says, amazing happens. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least. They repent. They stop eating. They change their clothes. They repent and all of a sudden, they become anonymous witnesses as they tell one another of God's word. God's word goes from the lips of Jonah into the mouths of these people in Nineveh who are repenting, and it makes it from the greatest of them to the least, and all the way up to the king in verse 6. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. God's word is a reality in the life of this king right away. I wonder, is God's word a reality in your life? Do you do you have a, a personal reality, like a real relationship with God? If, if God's word doesn't have a cataclysmic effect on your life, I don't know what will. If the reality of God in your life doesn't make a difference when you are parenting, when you are napping, when you are working or watching TV or driving down the car or driving the car down the street I, I just or whatever it is you do if the reality of God at any point during your week doesn't matter to what you're doing you've got a problem Christian you've allowed your spiritual senses to become dull you need to wake up Spiritual senses are dulled when we stop listening to what God says to us in his word. When we stop talking to him in prayer. God must be real to you. Jesus must be your friend. All the time. You are, when you put your faith in Christ, you are united to him. You are 
married to Christ. And that's not a relationship that, you, it has to be a reality all the time. Right? Like, I am married to Chelsea, and the reality of our marriage is with me all the time. Right? If I, like, if it wasn't, and she went off and did whatever and was like, well, you know, we weren't in the same room, and so the reality of our relationship doesn't really matter because I was somewhere else, I'm going to be upset. Right? Because we've, we've made promises to one another. That our relationship, our being married, is going to impact every other area of our life. The same is, is true to a greater extent with Christ. When you know God, it's going to impact everything else you do. You can't just take your relationship with God and put it on the shelf and say, all right, Sunday morning, you know, 11 to 12, maybe a little longer, and take that relationship off, and this is... I've got my, my Jesus relationship. Like, G- Jesus is not your mistress. The Bible says when you become a Christian, you become part of the church, and the church is called the bride of Christ. He demands faithfulness. Stop running around on him. Your relationship with God must be a reality. Does God's word affect you like it affects the king here? Does it change you? Does it dictate your behavior? Do you do what God says? Are you willing to say what he says? Are you willing to believe what God has said like the king? It's an extraordinary response. Look at what he does. He, in order to identify with the rest of the people in Nineveh, kind of as their representative, that's what a king does. He gets up from the throne, takes off his royal robe, puts on sackcloth, and sits in ashes. I can't help but see Jesus in this picture, who was seated on the throne of heaven, got up from his throne, took off his robes of immortality, took on the frailty of human flesh, and came to the earth. Not just to identify and represent his people. Yes, he does do those things. Not just to attempt and avert the wrath of God, but to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of his people. It's amazing good news what Jesus has done for us. Yes, the gospel is a message of judgment, but it's also a message of salvation for all who will believe. Yet many do not. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. Matthew 12, 38. Jesus has context-wise at the end of chapter 11 said, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. It's light. And what he's saying is, follow me. Submit to me. I'm the way of salvation. He proceeds to do signs and wonders and teach and preach. 
And throughout that teaching and preaching, he says that he's greater than the temple in verse 6 of chapter 12. And then in our section, he's going to claim to be greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. And what he's saying is he is the great prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament. Saying, I'm the, I'm the culmination of all this revelation. You need to repent and, and follow me. And he's in the process of teaching. And in verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of a huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. No sign for them. He says the sign of Jonah. Which I, I, There's debate over what the sign of Jonah is. I think it's twofold. I think it's definitely the resurrection. You see that part about uh, Jonah being in the belly of the great fish and Jesus being in the heart of the earth. I think when he resurrects, as Jonah resurrects from the belly of the fish, that's certainly a sign. But the other part of the sign of Jonah, I think, is this. And it's the one that's more pertinent to our text this morning. It's preaching. It's preaching. You see that in verse 41? Men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah's here. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the fullness of God's revelation. The Word made flesh, John tells us. You are seeing God face to face. And you're not repenting at my preaching. You're not Believing God. Therefore, the people of Nineveh who repented at just five words of Hebrew preaching will rise up and judge you. They knew far less of God's word, but they believed it. Yet you, the religious leaders, are skeptical of it. You're skeptical of me and you persist in unbelief. Therefore, Nineveh will rise up in judgment on you because you do not believe. I mean, look, look at how Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, model for us what it means to believe God. I mean, their whole city is changed. Their whole lives are changed. Look at verse 7. Then the king issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent 
He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. I mean, this is repentance. Even the animals are involved, right? Which one of the really neat things in Jonah is all of the animals and, and all of the rest of creation obey God except for God's prophet. This is really neat. The wind obeys God, the sea obeys God, the fish obeys God. Later we'll see the plant and the worm obey God. Here, the animals are responding rightly to the word of God, but, but Jonah does not. It really is brilliant. But th- this is real deal, top to bottom, life-changing. We believe the word of God, and so we are changed repentance. And, and you might ask, now what the animals do? Why are they getting the animals involved here? Why aren't they tasting any food or drinking any water? Well, let me ask you a question. Some of you know this better than I do. What happens when you don't feed cows? I don't know if that's true or not. Could be. Somebody told me they they stopped giving milk. But I was thinking they moo. Right? And so what what happens when you have a whole lot of cows and you don't give them milk? They all moo together. And so what's going on when they deprive the animals of food is the animals actually start to participate in the um, repentance of the whole city. They're participating in the mourning over sin. They're metaphorically weeping and wailing at at their sin. They're repenting. It's it's the same deal with the sackcloth, right? That's not not a fashion that God prefers, as if it just looked really cool and that's what he wants people to wear. No, no. The sackcloth represents, usually their clothes are torn and sackcloth is on, it represents the torment of the heart over sin. It represents being grieved and turning from sin and trusting God. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God, Psalm 51, verse 17, is a broken spirit. He does not despise a broken and contrite heart. And that is what Nineveh as a city is expressing, the brokenness of their heart, their need for God's mercy. Verse 10. God saw their actions. What did he see? Their actions, their belief borne out in their behavior. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Let me answer some questions first, and then I'll get to the point and we'll be finished. Immediately, some of, your, some of your translations will have God repented or God changed his mind. And you will go, this poses a problem because uh, good theology and the rest of the Bible tells us that God is immutable. that He does not change. So what does that mean? Well, God does not change. He's always God. He's always the same in his character. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13. It doesn't change, but I think we, we have language here uh, that just helps us to understand God. It accommodates us. Furthermore, um, God knew how they would respond. Lastly, you might ask me questions about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. 
If God is in control, does he control everything? If he is in control of everything, why, uh, why does, do my choices matter? Right? And, and I'll answer you. Uh, does God control everything? Yes. Yes. Uh, do my decisions matter? Yes, they do. Are they free? Yes. Uh, I love the way Westminster Catechism says it. God ordains, freely ordains everything that is without doing violence to the will of his creatures. God is sovereign and you are responsible. He is in control and you make really important decisions. If you want more information on that, you can get R.C. Sproul's little book. I think it's actually free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Does God Control Everything? It's maybe 70 pages and it'll help introduce you to that material that God is the king of everything. He's sovereign over everything. There's not one maverick molecule in the universe God is in control, and you are responsible. Now the point of the text, the better stuff. Theology is important, but this is, this is where Jonah's been taking us. God relented from the disaster. God loves to forgive. He loves to forgive. He's rich in mercy, and he's a big spender. He wants to forgive anyone who will repent of their sins and trust him and believe in him. And so this warning to Nineveh, it's not a promise. It's a threat. It's, a, it's like uh, the uh, parent that says to their children, if you don't clean up your toys, I will, and I'll do it with a trash can. And the parent's serious. But if the kid picks up their toys, the you know, parent doesn't come behind him and go, well, I'm just putting them in the trash anyway. No, the, the warning, the threat, is meant to curtail the behavior. It's meant to change the behavior that is negative to a behavior that is positive. The same thing with God's warning of judgment. That's why it's a warning. It's an invitation to the people in Nineveh to repent. And when they repent... God relents. Jonah preaches God's word and the people of Nineveh repent. God is so willing to forgive. He's so willing to forgive, in fact, he didn't wipe out the human race the second that Adam sinned. He's so willing to forgive, in fact, that he came to earth, took on flesh, lived the life you were supposed to live, died the death you were supposed to die and rose from the dead so that by faith in him you can have confidence that you too will one day rise. And he waits now, Jesus does, in heaven, not returning yet, because he's waiting for more people to believe in him and to trust him. But he is returning one day. He's going to return to make all things new, to make everything sad untrue. And he's going to return to judge evil. All evil will be judged and punished. It is either if you are a Christian, your evil has been judged and punished in Christ on the cross. Your judgment day was on Good Friday. It has been punished in Christ or it will be punished on the last day. You will bear the punishment for your sin if you are outside of Christ for all eternity. Don't presume 
upon a second chance. This life is the only chance you will get to trust Christ. Don't presume you will have a second chance to hear this gospel and respond to it. You are not guaranteed tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Believe what God has said. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that indeed you work through your word. It's how you tell us about who you are and about who we are. We thank you that you have taken us, a weak and sinful and imperfect people, and allowed us not only to be saved and inherit the blessing that's due to Christ because of our faith in him, which you have given to us as a gift, Not only have you given us all these blessings, but you allow us to participate in your work in the world by making us heralds of your word, by giving us your name. God, we pray that you would make us faithful witnesses, that we would be in the habit of doing what you say, saying what you say, and believing what you say, God, we thank you that you always stand ready to forgive us each and every time. We'll screw up many, many times, and you'll forgive us many, many times. You are so rich in mercy, so rich in love, so rich in graciousness, and we praise you and we thank you for that. Thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you for giving us life teaching us what it is to truly live, which is to be alive to you, God. Anything else is just a walking death. Thank you for waking us up with your word, giving us faith when we've heard it. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.